Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this is Storymakers Show. And we are so thrilled to be here with Aya de Leon. And um, I'm going to read. All right. I'm going to read the short bio, although I, I'm in love with the whole thing. <laughs> but um, people can go to ayadeleon.com and learn more, and, and we'll, we'll delve in as well here. But. Um, Aya de Leon directs the Poetry for the People program at UC Berkeley, which is just so awesome. Uh, Kensington Books published her debut feminist heist novel, Uptown Thief, <laughs> this summer, July 2016, and will publish the next book in the series, The Boss, in June 2017. Her writing and performance have received acclaim in The Village Voice, Washington Post, Oakland Tribune, San Francisco Chronicle, SF Bay Guardian, and the East Bay Express. A graduate of Harvard College with an MFA from Antioch University, uh, Aya has been an artist in residence at Stanford University, a Cave Canem Poetry Fellow, and a Slam Poetry Champion. She publicly married herself in the 90s. I, I, have, I know of one other person who did that in the 90s. Uh, and from 1995 to 2012, hosted an annual Valentine's Day show that focused on self-love. She has written for various media outlets, such as XO Jane, Ebony, Huffington Post, Guernica, um, Reductress, Essence, Writer's Digest, Bitch Magazine, Ra Racialicious, Fusion, Quartz, and The Toast. She also blogs tweets about culture, gender, and race, and like we, things we need to talk about right now. And you can visit her at Aya de Leon. So, so thrilled to have you here. So you're not oh. doing much in a day, right? No, yeah. just kicking it. <laughs> it is really delightful to be here. <laughs> Plus your, your, your kind of tagline on your... Um, and your website says author, activist, faculty, mom, right? Yes, that's kind of my life. That's, yeah. that's enough. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, we're going to start briefly with what we're working on now and then segue into the many things we want to talk to you about. So I will just say I just came back from the cafe where I put in my time. Yes. And I've been so trying to figure out what's next in my book. I've gotten removed from the writing to the point where I was actually really terrified. So I set a timer and I wrote a scene and it was, yeah, it was like, Oh yeah, I can pedal. I know how to do this. Thank God. I'm back on the bike. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was my triumph of the day. Very nice. What are you working on? And right now I'm working on a lot of reading. <laughs> so I'm reading, I'm reading a lot of things. And um, although you know, we've put aside an entire day tomorrow for you to revise your screenplay. Yes. So then, so. so tomorrow I have my screenplay time, but Nice. You know, it's good to do some, uh, you know, prep in, internally in advance and then let your imagination work a little bit more. So that's what I'm working on. Awesome. How about you, yeah. Aya? What are you working on now? <laughs> well, funny you should ask. Um, I think the big, the the umbrella here would be NaNoWriMo. Ooh. A month or a lifestyle. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> I'm 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 finding myself sort of adopting NaNoWriMo as a lifestyle, which is um, interesting. Um, so Kensington has me on a book a year contract, which is which <laughs> is intense, right? It's it's really exciting. You know, I feel like I just I feel like my new book is out, but actually, no, my new book is coming out. You know, less than a year apart, eleven months. And right? so, what's your deadline for the new one? The new, new the one. deadline for the new one. My copy edits went in. Oh my god! Last week. Wow. Last week. And so then now you're writing the third. Well, <laughs> I'm waiting. Um, basically, my copy edits went in beginning of last week, and my uh, editor had approved my first three chapters and outline. And so I was like, great, let me just, you know, let me keep the momentum going. Kind of like, this is done. Let me pick up the next one. Um, but then I realized, oh, the editor hadn't actually given me feedback on the outline. And I'm an outliner. And if you're an outliner and that's your thing, the outline has to be good. Yeah. You know, you don't want to go back. Like I'm learning, like, I don't want to go back and change things structurally. I want to get the outline approved and then like chug, 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 NaNoWriMo style. So Thank goodness I remembered that. And I was like, you know, asked my editor, so, you know, what do you think of this? 
Um, and she said, oh, I need a week. So I was like, what do I do? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I actually picked up the, the young adult novel I had done during NaNoWriMo <laughs> and, uh, gave it a second draft wow. and then I sent it to my agent in <laughs> a week in a week well it, it, first let, let of all, it, yeah it's a YA so it's only 150 pages <laughs> and <laughs> you know I had written like I had outlined it really carefully and oh sorry I had outlined it really carefully and I had you know I'm working with these arcs right I'm working with the hero's journey arc and you know, I'm working with these different genres. So one of the things about genre is once you internalize the formulas and the templates, you can start plugging it in and cranking it out. So I just wanted to know, like, was I on the right path? So I sent it to my agent and I just heard back from her. She's like, this is really good. So Yay. Like, ah! I, okay, I have, a, I have a technical question. So when you said you did a second draft, did you look back at the first draft? Yeah. Were you typing it in from hard copy? I went... I went, so I, uh, my second draft was a lighter second draft than I've done many times. So I went back and during, one of the things for me in the NaNoWriMo style um, is, you know, you want to keep going. So there'll be times where it's like, oh, I should really describe the park they're walking through. And you know what? I want to do that right now. I don't care. So I'll write in caps, describe park. Yeah. So, you know, really for me, the second draft was a lot of, you know, just going through and reading through the whole thing, being like, oh, this doesn't make sense. This is a little, you know, this is odd. This is off. But um, I spent a lot of time going back to all those things that I said, describe park or, um, you know, say more here or, you know, she gives a speech, you know, sometimes you're like, <laughs> she gives a speech and you keep going. So, you know, what I said to my agent was, I know this needs more. Like the pacing is is just you can feel the NaNoWriMo pace, like da 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 da. Um, and also, it needed more sensory detail. Like you needed to really be able to have those moments in the scene where you felt things going on. But the dialogue was there and the action was there, and I wanted to make sure that it was working. And she was like, "Yeah, this is this is working. We can probably send this out in early 2017." So I was like, "Oh, oh my." That is awesome. Yeah, it's really exciting. So I have like 10 books in my head at any given moment. And so I think part of what I'm trying to figure out now that I have an agent and a publisher and I'm sort of in the system. In the past, I had 10 books in my head and nobody was going to publish those books. Like I, I hadn't figured that part out. But now I'm I, I'm sort of figuring out maybe I'm just going to be one of those fast writers who writes genre books and writes them quickly. So that's like really exciting. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> I have so many questions. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm like, OK, this is going to be a, one of those fast paced, excited kind of conversations. Like, oh. uh, 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 but the question I, I kind of have is, you know, I think a key thing you said there was about having a publisher. And you've got a clear set of expectations from that publisher. And one of the things that we talk about and actually kind of discovered is that, you know, a lot of our students actually feel like they have something that has to be written and can spend all this time on it because there isn't a clear obligation to completing that. And so it was just, you know, that might have been one of the differences between the ten books in your head prior to getting your publisher. Yeah. Well, definitely it is. So the, you know, I'm working on some, I'm working on some books that wouldn't be a good fit for this particular publisher. So my agent will still be going out with some stuff, but to have finished one book and have three more under contract with the publisher, there's this sense like I need to crank these books out, mm -hmm. you know? And so it, it's been quite a gift to end up with a really commercial publisher. For some people, it would be like, you know, for folks whose process doesn't lend itself, like in my contract, they want an outline. Yeah. So for people who are not outliners and some people are like, I'm not an outliner, mm -hmm. you know, that would be really, really hard. But because they're a commercial publisher that works so much with genre out, you know, people outline like that's typical in the genre because with literary fiction, anything might happen. But with romance fiction, like, some particular things are going to happen. I'm writing heist. Like somebody's going to rob somebody else. 
<laughs> I have high time writing and there will be some problems, but we are pretty sure that, you know, our people are going to survive and get away with some kind of some, some amount of money. Right. So right. once you have those structures in these genres that are set out, outlining is sort of implicit in the genre. So I do think that's true. And I, there have been all these moments with the second book, like the first book took eight years. Oh, now, of course. <laughs> yeah, eight years. Now, of course, I also had a kid and was writing other things and, you know, submitted to agents and got turned down and had <laughs> developmental editors and had one group of people, the book should be this. And then I did wrote what they said. And then that, no, no, the book should be this. And then, you know, so it was a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, bumping, you know, it's like you're in a maze, like you hit the wall and then you come and you find your way. So now I've got more, you know, it's less of a maze and more of like a straight line. So I worry. We're <laughs> just both like, let me ask you Mike really quickly. So, cause so this is, this, this is a book that is very commercial and it's, as you said, like romance heist, and it's also really feminist, right? It's extremely, yeah. it's got a very, a, a genuinely multicultural cast. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it's got a multi-sexual identity cast and, yeah. you know, and it's, and it's got this, and yet it's like sexy and erotic and charged with plot. So can you, and you, can you talk about, um, one, is your publisher, like, is anything else feminist that they're doing? <laughs> uh, well, funny you should ask. So I I would say that I am way out there on the feminist scale for this particular publisher. I wouldn't say no. I think that they are publishing other stuff that's feminist. And, you know, it kind of depends on, is it an old school uh, you know, what's the what's the calibration? Is it old school feminist calibration or more new school feminist calibration? But definitely. I mean, they published Linda Villarosa's um lesbian black lesbian romance novel um back in oh the nineties, the two thousands, like you know, a while back. And you know, that's not sort of, you know, no Highlanders. And you know, white women with tresses here. You know, that's like, and, and at the you know, same time that you know, Jewel Gomez is being told your character can't be black and a lesbian and a vampire. That's exactly. too many things. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So, mm. um, yeah. No, but I'm definitely I'm out there for them. And but it's exciting. I think that's part of what has been amazing. Like there was part of me that was just panicking. The first one took eight years. This next one I have like eighteen months from the time of the contract. Plus I've got another book to launch. Wah! You know, I was freaking out. And there are two things. One, the genre formula is like, I know what's going to happen. I just, you know, I know structurally what needs to happen. There's like a heist, a romance, and family drama. That's what we do. That's my trio, <laughs> my trifecta. So that's going to happen. Then the other thing that I know is that it's in this world of sex workers, you know, so there's going to be some connection to sex work and to sex work political struggles. So the second book is about some strippers who want to unionize because, you know, I'm taking this from the actual struggles in the community, which are basically about economic exploitation and labor. So I was like, let's do it. Let's go for the labor. So that was the second book. But also, you know, I was panicking like, well, is this book going to be crap? Because I've got such a short period of time to write it. And I found that, A, in those eight years, I had learned a lot about writing. And, you know, and not only, I hadn't just written this book. I had worked on many different books and done a couple of NaNoWriMo's. And lo and behold, you know, years later, I'm a better writer, which is what we know, right? You write, you get better. So that was number one. Number two, I had already created the world. So one of the problems has been you know, that people had to say, you haven't really described this person or who's that, you know, whereas I still have a whole book full of information about this crew. So I've had to figure out in a second book, like, how much do you say? You don't want to tell them, you don't want to spend, you know, 30 pages recapping your first book, but you want people to be able to get in there and know what happened. So that was, that was a, a learning curve, but not as steep. So there's the structure of the genre and the world has been built but the other thing that's so exciting being with such a commercial publisher is like the bar is lower than if it were, you know, if this was, if, 
because because of the apartheid structure of the publishing industry, there's literary fiction, which is supposed to be like mind-blowingly deep. And then there's commercial fiction that's supposed to be shallow and worthless, but entertaining. So I've, you know, given those stereotypes, and we know that there's literary fiction that's crap, and we know that there's genre fiction that's mind-blowingly deep. But given those stereotypes, I have to say, as a writer, right now it's working in my favor. Yeah. Because I feel like the expectations of urban lit, like I'm writing street lit, the expectations of urban lit are so low that it helps me have this NaNoWriMo lifestyle, which has slogans like no plot, no problem and quantity over quality, right? Because I, I believe in what I'm writing and I love writing and I'm passionate about it. But at this moment, having like heavy literary expectations might sink me, but having this lower bar, even though that lower bar is basically born of racism and classism, right? So I object to the dynamics in the society that have created a lower bar, but it's actually really nice to have one because I feel confident that I can jump over it, right? And I wrote just one of those things that you wouldn't expect, but it's working in my favor. Well, I also, ironically, it would seem that it would also almost allow you to take kinds of risks that you might not if you were worried about being you know, perfect or doing this, you know, other thing. It's like, right. okay, uh, you got it, you know? Right. Well, there's also, you know, in literary fiction, it's like the books can't have the same structure. Whereas with genre fiction, it's like the same, but different. I'm like, great, I can do that. <laughs> and I think the other thing very much here, like I talked about the racism and classism of urban fiction, but it's also very much the sexism of, um, romance and women's fiction. Mm -hmm. Like the bar is so low based on sexism. And um, that gives me some room. Um, and I'm always playing with those romantic tropes, right? Like I want to satisfy, also with writing genre, I want to satisfy the romantic tropes, but I also want to play with them, which is one of the reasons that it is so important to have... Um, to have a world where it's not just a heterosexual world. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things about the first book, Uptown Thief, is that the partnership between the two queer women on the team, that is the, that's the touchstone of kind of loving intimate relationships for the book. Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of the straight women who are struggling to try and figure this stuff out with men. And you have these two women who love each other and are down for each other and are solid. Like they are solid in the book, you know, and at some points I was like, Oh, well, what I want to like write, you know, like I thought about, you know, when you're doing a series and, and, and in the series, the way that, um, Kensington often does it in the way that I'm doing it, different characters get their own book, mm -hmm. right? And since I'm writing romance, like, would I have one of the two women get their own book? But it's like, well, it couldn't, it couldn't really work because their romance is solid. There's no like, oh, will we or won't we? And then like, well, I could write a prequel, but then they didn't really know these other people yet and they weren't doing heists. So it's like what, what this pair of women brings is a solidity and also this ability to navigate the complexity of sex work, right? Because when you're a sex worker, there's like part of my job has to do with sexual and emotional labor with other people, you know, and there's a way that for them, like they as women and their relationship to each other, it's clear that what they're doing labor wise with men is separate. And you see in the community, which often, you know, it's not that that never happens with sex workers who are with women, but with sex workers who are with men, there's a, um, the society doesn't create much room for men to understand that. Mm -hmm. And we see that reflected in the relationships that um, the two women who are dating men have. Mm -hmm. Taisha, who get, who's, uh, she gets her own book in the second book. We discover in the second book that she's not totally straight, but you know, definitely her romance is heterosexual. Yeah. yeah. She has some moments that are, um, you know, that may be unexpected for some readers. <laughs> I love it. So, um, 
Would you have a question? Well, I, I want to dig into specifics about outlining. And actually, right. Angie and I teach, but primarily Angie, uh, teaches structure even for literary novelists. You know, that's sort of what, what one of the things we do. And, and because she has a screenwriting background as well. And um, and so I'm just re- I would just love to hear a few of the concrete details about how you outline what you you mentioned the hero's journey, but any you know kind of what the structures are that you that you play into. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely the hero's journey is super helpful for me because you know part of what happens for me is I'll have an I I have a plot idea for a book, and I have a sort of a sense of where it's going, but I just literally like cut and paste the hero's journey onto the page. And it's like, you know, okay, we're in the original world. Like, where are we? And then the refusal of the call, somebody does something like, no, I'm not doing that. Right. And so then we see, you know, meeting the mentor. Okay. And, and usually those ideas have all been sort of part of my messy Mm -hmm. kind of paragraph that I've like gotten down. Yeah. And then this happens. And then there's this kind of person who comes in. Oh, and then this happens. Right. So I have that, but it's really that structure just organizes where those things go, you know, and it's like, and the test, you know, the descent into the underworld. Oh, where are we going? Okay, we're going here. And that just really organizes those pieces that are usually sort of floating around in the first like blah Mm -hmm. of the draft. And then I get in Scrivener. And I get into Scrivener and I usually have, I don't, I think there's like maybe 25 to 30 chapters in this YA. And then I just get into Scrivener and I just write, here's what happens in this scene, you know? And I use, I think a mistake that I made earlier in outlining was I would say something like, um, you know, there there's a falling out between these people. Um, and then I think what was more helpful in uh, when I started using Scrivener was thinking more in terms of a scene. Mm-hmm. They have a big fight in the restaurant, right? So it was like just mm-hmm. understanding like I'm writing a scene. So it wasn't sort of like a plot thing of like, this is going in this direction, but just like, what's the actual scene? Mm-hmm. So I started to think more in scenes. And I know um, literary writers who also work with that kind of arc. But part of what, you know, um, so the young adult novel I'm writing is a spy novel, right? And so with spy novels, you have like some basic stuff that also has to happen. So really figuring out like having read a bunch of spy novels, the genre, right? So I have, so I have like the genre arc and then the, um, the hero's journey arc, because it's a younger YA, while there's a sort of a romantic something that happens, it's very, it's not a lot, right? So that arc is like, meow. Whereas like, like, oh, oh. Um, so I also want to that- say I appreciate for the fact that people are listening and not seeing the auditory cues for the size of the arcs, because... <laughs> It, you can't see it, but it's a perfect, perfect job. So thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Anytime. So yeah, um, that, you know, that was, that was really fun. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the reasons I feel confident that I can write four books in four years with the original series, because basically I have the hero's journey arc. I have the romantic arc. I have the heist story. And then I have like the family drama plot. And so really, it's just a question of one of the things that I do is I separate out those three initially. So I write like, what are the plot points of the romance? Um, And, you know, it was really one of my favorite parts of the book coming out um, was, you know, you had these these two characters, Taisha and the rapper Thug Woofer, who in Uptown Thief had some interactions so by the second book, we've already had some, you know, girl meets boy, girl and boy, blah, blah, blah. So I had to think like, what's going to break them up? Like they've already been through some stuff. And so, so then it was like, and I came up with something that I was like, ha, 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 you know, because all of it is political, right? So uh, I don't know how much I should give away, but uh, I'll just say that uh, it's ripped from the headlines mm. as far as um, st- you know, as far as objectionable 
things happening in the music industry. So I'll leave that there. <laughs> it was so fun, you know, and that's, I think that's the thing that's great. So I, I, I have the romantic arc, like, you know, this happens, and then, you know, and we kind of know a lot of what that's going to look like. And then we have the heist, like there's some issue. And, you know, for me, I have this stripper union. I was like, how are we going to get a heist in there? You know, like that's the, the, that's a real struggle in the sex work community is the economic exploitation and really like outrageously unfair working conditions for exotic dancers. So how am I going to get some heist in there? So I was like, oh, but you know, eventually, Maha, got the heist. you know, and then what's the family drama, right? So then figuring out. So do you have the same kind of framework uh, for those individual plot lines that you do for the hero's journey? So you, you've mentioned a couple of things like, you know, like for a romance, there has to be the cute meat and there has to be the, mm -hmm. you know, X, Y and Z steps. But mm -hmm. I have not seen them quite so filled out in the same way mm -hmm. as the hero's journey is. And so I was just wondering, you know, I, I think with romance, I have just been raised in this society. Like I, I, I'm not a reader of the romance genre per se. I have read romances, but it's not like, I'm not one of those people's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really reading a lot of that. Um, but I, you know, I've watched a thousand rom-coms. How many rom-coms? Right, right, right. So it's like, I know the, you know, and, and then there's also in television, they use a lot of the same stuff. So I, I, I have internalized the romantic mm -hmm. formula. Um, and I find it just, you know, you were just talking about, happens. yeah, you were just talking about when you lay out the hero's journey, you're like, okay, great, great. And one of the things I love about outlining as an outliner is that I actually help, I think it helps me get more creative in the fact that it's like, I can burn through some bad ideas much more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so, um, that piece about organizing, it's just, it's interesting to think about genre expectation. And saying, okay, like for the heist film, I know there has to be the, we meet the group. And I know there has to be the bad guy or with the money. And I know there has right. to be each of these things. But I just didn't know if in your Scrivener, you were like, this is, you know, these four scenes have to be filled in. I usually work in, I work in word first. Mm -hmm. Like I'm working in word. And then there's a point in word where it becomes clear what the, what the, because I need to be looking at it all in a particular way in Word. And then I start cutting and pasting from Word into Scrivener. And then those are sort of like the mm -hmm. the chapter outlines. Um, yeah, the, the explanation of what's going to go in that scene. And then each day is just writing one scene. Mm. So, you know, so with the YA, it's like 30 scenes, 30 days, you know. Dun, 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 dun. And... How many um, scenes in Uptown Thief or The Boss about? Uptown Thief and The Boss have a lot more scenes. Adult novels are longer and have more scenes. Uptown Thief was really long. <laughs> like, so long. It came in at like 115,000, 120,000 words. I can't remember. Um, and I had to cut, I had to cut it to 95 uh, from like, I think it was 115. I had to cut, maybe it was more. It was like, I had to cut like a lot of words. And so I went through and I cut every scene that wasn't necessary. And I was like, I love that scene. And some of them show up in The Boss and some of them show up in a short story I wrote. So like, they are not gone forever, but you know, they were great. Um, and then that wasn't enough. And I had to literally cut at the sentence level. I've done it was really killing me. Um, then with the, the sequel, The Boss, um, you know, it started as a nano draft and I was like, this is really short compared to um, Uptown Thief, which also Uptown Thief got so much feedback from different people who were like, it needs this. So then I'd write that and it needs this. So it sort of ended up almost like a Winchester mystery house <laughs> with all these things that got added. Right. And then things had to get cut later. Um, I think I've written that book, too. <laughs> yes, I think we all have. <laughs> yeah. So I I. um. So as an outliner, I like that. I think that they're, you know, I haven't internalized the hero's journey in the same way that I've internalized sort of the the thriller arc too. Because the thriller arc, like at the end, there's just like the bad guy and the, confront the deadly confrontation. You know, so it's been interesting 
it it happened organically in Uptown Thief, but these other stories like don't necessarily have, you know, so I'm like, who's going to be the bad guy (laughs) for the final confrontation, you know? And so it's been interesting figuring out like, okay, you know, and, and literally looking like uh, I've, in order to sell the third book in the series, I had to outline it. And I was like, oh no, they've got to, there's got to be a confrontation at the end. And I'm like, who can we confront? You know, like <laughs> looking back through the text, like, well, this person's over here and that person's not really, you know, that person's pretty nice. Like, right? you know, I mean, they're just the misguided. secretary. <laughs> right. So I'm like, who can I, you know, so in both of them, there was like, who can I make, you know, creepy and dangerous because that wasn't, you know, that wasn't actually originally part of the story, but it sort of gets tacked on. Whereas, you know, in Uptown Thief, there's like this, there's this creepy, dangerous pimp, you know, and from the beginning, he is dangerous, you know, and that was part of, that just was organically part of this clinic. So I had to figure out like, oh, we need some dangerous, creepy people. <laughs> Did you go back and plant them and have oh, them run yeah. through the whole thing? Oh yeah. The other thing about Uptown Thief that was really interesting, you know, speaking of feminism. So I, you know, I just, I don't really write backstabbers. Like I'm just not, you know, in my world, women cooperate. <laughs> <laughs> I have all these cooperative women working together, you know, to stick it to the man. And that's fine. But, you know, one of the things that was interesting when Kensington bought the book, they said, well, you know, we, this is urban fiction. And in urban fiction, there's just a lot of, you don't know who you can trust and backstabbing. And I was like, oh, okay. So um, I, I had to create a backstabber character. Yeah. And I had to like go back and like, plant the backstabber character, you know, in from the beginning. And and so she was like the last character to get added and had to keep coming up with reasons for her to show up so that by the time she went and backstabbed people, people weren't like, who? (laughs) (laughs) There had to be like, oh yeah, we saw that coming or we didn't, you know, so, but I had to really set it up. So that was fun to do. Um, The boss has, uh, uh, sort of a backstabby sister who shows up from the beginning. So in in Uptown Thief, this and I'm obsessed. I found out I'm obsessed with two sisters. That's what you learn when you write a series. I'm obsessed with two sisters. Like Bing, they all have two sisters. So um, do you two, have a sister? I have. Yes, I do. But I have more sisters than that. You have complicated have, sisters, right? I have complicated sisters, right? So. It, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that that would be my thing, but apparently it is my thing. So in the first book, the two sisters, it's like the older sister is protecting the young sister in this like loving, amazing way that shapes her character forever. Um, and then, so no backstabbiness going on there. But uh, the second the second book like has a really mean girl sister. So it, you know, so the backstabber was sort of built in to the family drama and the third book is um is about sisters you know it's sort of a good sister bad sister book so that one also has some of that like Rrr. um but but yeah left to my own devices my women cooperate so <laughs> sisterhood is powerful yeah yeah <laughs> so that's definitely my thing so it's been interesting thinking about you know what are the tropes that I want to make sure get in there Right. Because that's part of genres like these tropes, you know, are it's built on the tropes and playing with them and playing with the content of the tropes is super fun. So outlining. Yeah, I I, I start with three. I've got the the heist, the romance and the family drama. And I just write them out. And then it's sort of like shuffling a deck of cards like, you know, you you shuffle them so that you have kind of an interesting tension and pacing going back and forth from like the heist needs to be building, the romance needs to be building and the family drama needs to be building. And then there are those great moments where they work together. Like, you know, there's a, you know, something big happens around the heist and she comes home and is all traumatized by that. And then the love interest shows up and she's been determined not to be vulnerable, but there she is all shook up from what happens in the heist. And then that actually creates opportunities in the romance and, you know, vice versa, the family drama is happening and that opens up something. So that's been really good. 
So you are also a poet and a slam poet, hip hop performance artist. How does how does that work uh, feed into or create tension with uh, your this this stuff You're with your free time? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, the the big view is that I started out in my twenties wanting to be a novelist, and I did not have the attention span, and I was too extroverted to spend the time in the chair. So. I, in some ways, it was a 20-year distraction. <laughs> no. But uh, <laughs> in some ways, it was more like, a, I'd say, a 15-year distraction. But um, it did a couple of things that were great. So one was I, I, I couldn't slow down enough to really look at every word in my fiction. Like, you know, and this is part of why I'm a fast writer because I'm like, like that's how my mind works. But poetry forced me to slow down and had little things that I could read a hundred times to force myself to slow down. Um, And so I write a little poetry now and then now, and I develop an occasional spoken word piece usually having to do with like wanting to speak particularly to current events. Um, But for the most part, what I'm writing is fiction. And yeah, I think the, the big piece was that as a younger extroverted writer, I could get what I needed and build the kind of community that I needed. I just couldn't tolerate the, the, what, what novels were requiring of me uh, at that time but I was always a novelist at heart. So I feel like I've grown into it and that the poetry really helped me grow into it. It's funny because people say write short stories and I kind of can't. Hmm. Like I pretty much can't write a decent short story. There's something about the way that my mind works is that it it thinks in these huge arcs. Hmm. So it's not surprising that I can outline because that's how I'm thinking, oh, and then this whole crazy thing is going to happen. Yeah, so that's been interesting. Speaking of current events, do you want to speak at all to, I mean, I, I just think you have some really great ideas about particularly how writers can engage with the troubled political moment. Yes. Um, so we are in a political moment of big trouble. And the thing, I think one of the things that I am sort of wrapping my mind around and uh, wanting to articulate as a writer is So for those of us who are progressives, uh, we have experienced some devastating electoral losses in this country. And that means that our party, you know, for those of us who find the Democratic Party to be closest (laughs) to our our, uh, political beliefs, and I'm one of those people who, like, I don't line up with everything that the Democrats believe, but of the two major parties, I am left of them which means that they are the closest. Um, so a couple of things. One is that <clears throat> in, a, in a moment where progressives are not engaged in governing at the national level because Republicans have the- um, Everything. The White House, the House and the Senate, right? Um, and they're about to steal the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the critical thing for us, I believe, is about um, communicating ideas. That's what leadership looks like when you're not in power, is that you're communicating ideas to people so that you can get into power. Um, And I think that as writers, we are good at articulating ideas. We can have an image in our head and use words to get that image into someone else's head. And I think that when it comes to politics, we've all seen leaders who have a great image in their head, and then some words come out of their mouth, and not only does that image not get in the other person's head, the other person gets a different image (laughs) that is not what the person intended, and then they react to that. But what about women? You didn't mention women. Well, of course I meant women. Well, then why didn't you say it? You know, and so Mm. part of what we can do as writers is bring ourselves into all kinds of different environments where people are trying to communicate about ideas and build across differences. So, you know, for example, I, 
I believe that a lot of the leadership um, among Democrats, progressives, and the left, a lot of the leadership's communication needs editing, you know, and we are good editors. And we can say, we can look like, for example, another thing that I am feeling inspired about is I'm feeling inspired about getting involved in the Democratic Party to push the party to become more progressive. And I think that, you know, Bernie Sanders, while I, you know, there's some things of his I love, there's some things of his I um, don't agree with. um, I think that he modeled what it would look like to have sort of an infusion of progressives into the Democratic Party to like move it to the left. And so I, for the first time, I've been registered Democrat for, you know, since the beginning, I, for the first time, went and looked at like, what are the platforms of some of my local Democratic clubs? And I was like, this needs editing, you know? And so, and that there were things missing or there were things that weren't very well phrased. And I think, you know, this is the time for us to get involved and to bring our gifts to different activist communities, because really, whether or not we're going to be able to quickly shift and move things um, with regard to Trump is going to depend on our ability to build coalitions. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I'll say is about a writer um, who I think just has a really brilliant and hopeful vision, and that's Steve Phillips. Um, He wrote the book Brown is the New White. Um, Folks at home cannot see that I just happen to be wearing the Brown is the New White t-shirt today. It really is coincidence. Um, But he wrote this great book talking about how it's, and like I said, it's extremely hopeful. He wrote this book, New York Times and Washington Post bestseller, explaining how, because he's a wonky political guy, he did the numbers, and that currently, given population demographics, a coalition of people of color and progressive whites can win national elections, president, house, senate, now. We have the numbers now. However, in order for that to work, there has to be stronger leadership of people of color in the Democratic Party. He had recent pieces in the nation. He founded the Democracy in Color movement. And um, it's just very inspiring. It's very inspiring to know that we actually have the numbers now. What we lack is the leadership of people of color, bold, progressive um, policy platforms that will inspire this group that he calls the new American majority and sort of the, um, the chronic racism in the democratic party that has led them to having 97% white led firms doing the consulting on strategy Mm. and this like pathetic ongoing strategy of chasing the conservative white swing voter, right? So we can't really show how progressive we are because we might frighten this swing voter. And as I wrote in a recent blog post, he's not that into you. (laughs) This whole like narrative of like, oh, I, you know, I'm waiting by the phone, you know, so this white swing voter, Democratic Party, stop waiting by the phone. He's not that into you. And be yourself. Right. And like, be your more progressive self. And Steve Phillips in his work, he shows that there are places where the democratic party, like really shows its progressiveness and takes a stand and the numbers go up, not down. You don't get the swing voter. It's not going to work. Um, and the other thing that I'll say about Steve Phillips's book, other than read it. It's really important. Like it was, it gave me a lot of life and inspiration right after the election when I was like, Oh no, you know, it was like, yes, we can do this. We can do it as early as 2018, Mm. you know, and I think it's going to require that the Democrats shift, um, and use community organizing strategies Mm. instead of paying for corporate media commercials, again, targeted at that swing voter. Um, But the other thing that's really powerful as a writer is like Steve Phillips is the policy wonk who did the research and the writing, but Bay Area writer Charlene Chang, she was the one 
who like coached and edited that book into life. And so I think that's the other thing for us as writers. It's like, what are we going to write? And who do we know that has a really important, timely book in them that we can support to help make that happen? Or who has, who has really great things to say and has written a book that is a total mess and we can help them, you know? So like, as communicators, as writers, as editors, who are we going to shadow? Who are we going to support? Who are we going to offer like, yeah, before you send that email out, just let me look it over, <laughs> you know, because it's going to really require a grassroots building of power. Mm-hmm. And we don't have time for people to miscommunicate and then squabble for six months and then realize like, oh, we were all tripping. and then. <laughs> you know, I had a feeling. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Because, um, part of our vulnerability here is that people are easily triggered by language that feels exclusionary or language that feels elitist or language that feels negating or invalidating. And we know how to help people massage that language so that it is inviting, right? And we need language of invitation and hope and listening, and we can help people make that happen. Yeah, it actually puts me in mind too, like there's a book that George Lakoff wrote a while ago about how conservatives really used language to create the frame of the conversation. So it wasn't even just like what we think of as language being like conversation, that if we're not careful, the terms of the conversation itself can yes. be defined by somebody else. And yes. so, you know, exactly what you're saying is, is this wonderful opportunity to take back the frame of the conversation and yes. make it one that inspires and seems just completely sensible, right? <laughs> because it is. Yes. So. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that has been really powerful about this particular moment with Trump that we see that that this election was um, won and lost based on racism, right? We have one sort of narrative of racism is over. We have a black president, right? So that was out there for a while. And then we had also all of this racism that had not gone anywhere that was available to be kind of activated and engaged in ways that we had not seen before. But the good news is that policies that intentionally and explicitly take on racism and take on other forms of oppression are actually welcomed by a progressive electorate that is a coalition of progressive whites and people of color. And I think if we learned anything from Trump, it was like, when he would get bolder, we would all think, well, it's a wrap, right? That is too bold. But I think that if we can take any kind of inspiration from somebody like that, it's an inspiration to be bold because we're no longer in an era where it's like we can have this sort of middle of the road, namby pambiness that's going to move us forward. Well, and- another big piece of racism, I think, is that we had this brilliant, you know, black biracial president who was young and so smart and won two elections and we didn't go, that's working. Let's do that again. Yeah. Like, well, that's, like, that's right. the like, p- big political lesson you always do, right? That's working. Let's right. do that again. Tim Kaine right. was people doing that from like 30 years ago. Right. Right. Instead of doing it from right now. Right. Well, I think one of the challenges, though, is that there's a way that there was there's so much racism in the leadership development in our country that um that folks hadn't been preparing the next Obama in the pipeline mm-hmm. you know for the for the amount of time that would be required and there are some great folks out there but there's something about that pipelining and we see people doing it now right so that in 2050 we'll have lots of choices <laughs> um But yeah, and I also think there's a way, you know, one of the things that I've been writing about, I think that there's a way that we sold the idea of Hillary Clinton as like, well, we're just going to keep on breaking those ceilings. Well, we broke, you know, first black president to be followed by first woman president. And I think there was a way that we didn't fully acknowledge 
how much of an outlier Obama was and that we haven't built that yet. Mm. You know, there was there was a way that everybody took for granted. Right. You have all these people didn't vote, voted for Jill Stein. Like they just thought we we've got this in the bag in a certain way, you know, and it was really only a few folks like Van Jones, like, y'all, we could lose. Right. <laughs> right. The lone voice that I heard in progressive circles. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's the other lesson that we I think you're right. And I think that if there had been someone who was in position to uh, be the next Obama, that the Democrats, you know, might have deployed that person in the primaries. And there wasn't. Although he you know, wasn't in he wasn't in position really at all. It was shocking. Right. For him. Right. To, to leap forward that right. way. And maybe, again, right. if we lived in a world where there were people ahead of him in the pipeline, he wouldn't have been right. able to do that. Exactly. But. Exactly. But yeah. I think that until he was elected, there was no pipeline to that office because it was understood that, like, it's not going to happen. Right. You're not, it's not going to work. And I mean, the only other thing that I'll say that I think is potentially positive, I mean, positive is such a strong word, <laughs> that, is an, that is an interesting uh, complexity of Trump's election is that previously we were only looking at the pool of senators and governors. Like that was the pool, right? So one thing about Trump's election is he was not in that pool, you know? And so the question of like being qualified, <laughs> that is- The window. Kind of, yeah, out the window. I'm actually applying to be a neurosurgeon based <laughs> exactly. on that model. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think that's a good plan, except not. But- um. Yeah, so I think that'll be interesting. There may be folks who are um, in the House of Representatives, which is a much more diverse body, right? Because Obama had gotten to the Senate, you know? And if you look at senators and governors, it's such a less diverse picture. So it might be interesting um, in 2020, there may be folks coming out of the House of Representatives. There may be folks who are in state assemblies. Like it just may open up some possibilities for people who, um, in the Democratic Party, for people who aren't governors and senators. Um, but yeah, it's really about leadership development. Yeah. Mm. So speaking of the election, it's time for our steal this segment <laughs> um, where we, uh, T.S. Eliot said amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. And uh, so we look at whatever things we've come across in our reading, viewing, wanderings that uh, we want to take and make our own. Do you want, do you want a starter? I would, uh, I would love to say, uh, the thing that I, the thing that I've stolen recently that's been the most exciting has been this spy girl, um, story. I ended up reading this spy girl fiction kind of by mistake. I was looking when I was writing heist, I started looking for like, you know, who else is writing women heist stories and they were hard to find. Uh, I found some in film. And I found some in uh, fiction that were YA. Mm -hmm. So that sort of, I started reading these spy girl, I started reading these YA heist girl stories. And one of those writers had also written some YA spy girl stories. And there are two women whose work I love. One is um, Robin Benway and the other one is Allie Carter. And what became clear to me immediately in both of their work, they're both white women writing white um, girl protagonists, but what became immediately clear to me that was so compelling is that being a spy is really an allegory for being a teenage girl. Mm. That it's all about like disguising yourself and learning to use your feminine wiles and mm. how do you manipulate people to get them on your side and what do you show and what do you hide and how do you engage with this sort of deception of being a female adult in our culture, right? You can't be authentic. You have to sort of develop this persona that you put on <clears throat> as, a, as a girl getting older, right? And I, I, I loved that. And I thought, oh, I want to write the black spy girl story. Like, and what would that be, right? So this whole idea that these two writers had laid out so beautifully that there's something about 
being a teenage girl and being a spy that is so insanely compatible. <laughs> um, and yeah. And then I was excited, you know, what would happen if you added a layer of race to that and how would race inform who was spying on whom to what end? And also how would race potentially inform how it is that, um, what it is to be a black teenage girl and what are some pieces of that. And so one of the things that I was really excited about there is <clears throat> in the book that I've written, we have kind of a really full figured girl who's in this white prep school. And in the context of this white prep school, she does not exist as a romantic character uh, as being in any way desirable. Right. So she's, in that environment. And so then based on what happens with the spy arc, right, of the plot, she gets, they have to hide out in this big urban high school. And so suddenly you have this black girl who's like, yeah, nobody's interested. Everybody's interested, right? And so what is it like to go from being the, you know, seen as the undesirable fat girl to being seen as the desirable girl, but not just like, oh, yay, people like me. But like, also now there's this avalanche of harassment. Right. Which is also very much part of being a girl. And particularly for Black women, this really sort of like toxic amount of harassment. So that's one of the things that happens early on in the book that I was like, ooh, you know, from the beginning, just thinking about being a teen girl and being a Black girl. So thank you, Ali Carter and Robin Benway. For- <laughs> Um, inventing this spy girl genre and I'm delighted to steal that whole allegory and figure out how does it work for black girls. Mm, that's fantastic. I love that. I love so that. Yeah. Uh, you got something up your sleeve? <clears throat> uh, you go first. All right. So I'm reading um, Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, which my cousin gave me. And I have the Brit. She gave me, me so I have a British version. Um, anyway, which so the spelling's different. Yeah. It's also the letters are really big in their books for some. Like it's big. It's, I don't know. Because everyone reads so much, they probably all need glasses. But anyway. Um, I mean, you know, they have advertisements in the subway for books, like giant, you know, it's like wow. amazing. But anyway. Um, so I noticed that the. The ordinary world in that book is kind of exceptional in that uh, she keeps dying and coming back to life in sort of a Groundhog Day way. And um, and so there's a longer ordinary world. And I've noticed this, like in Glass Castle, whatever, like if, if the ordinary world is, an, is itself kind of extreme, it, it sometimes goes for longer before the inciting incident. And the inciting incident in this case is when she starts to become aware of her circumstance and therefore starts to manipulate it. And it was really exciting. It was really exciting for her to get it and to start taking action. And, um, and it just made me think about structure and inciting incident, which I'm grappling with a lot right now. So um, I want to kind of steal that. Yes. <laughs> I actually want to actually say thank you to you for some of the approaches and stuff that you were talking about, I, it actually just really reminded me of, you know, I worked on this this novel, which was sort of about gifted girls who are poor mm-hmm. and sort of how that actually ends up intersecting. Mm-hmm. And it was driven by this feeling of like, you know, there's all these great, you know, stories, movies, books about, you know, brilliant boys and the mentors who come in to help <sighs> them. And um, I think that there's something really important about being able to look at the writing you love and think about the lens that matters to you and bringing those two together. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to say thank you because I think what I'm going to say in my steal this is I'm going to steal that approach. You know what I mean? It's reconnecting me to a similar approach, but that remembering that all of our little ideas and approaches are valuable. And I think yeah. that I kind of had, had moved away from that somewhat. So oh. thank you. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. <laughs> Aya, can you tell um, our listeners how they can find your work and, and their way to your social, your public presence? Yes. Awesome. A- absolutely. So uh, my website, ayadeleon.com, uh, has kind of the latest that I'm writing and, you know, where I'm appearing. And it also has a, my blog where I'm spouting off about 
uh, pretty much everything. I, I um, hope you run for something. I'm, I'm totally oh, voting for you. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I'm definitely ready to be in the background because, you know, I'd never write again. Right. That's yeah. true. Yeah, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I, so I'm spouting off about politics, but, you know, randomly about culture as well. Sometimes motherhood, stuff about writing, you know, more or less once a week. And I'm definitely also on Twitter at Aya de Leon, um, with again, such a wide mix, mothering stuff, but also lots of stuff around politics, feminism, sex work, racial justice, standing rock, like, you know, any, any bees I get in my bonnet come out on the blog and on Twitter. And, um, and that's also been great too, as a novelist, because as you can see, I got a lot of books going so I need like a place where if I want to write something, rah, rant, bam, get it out there. So that's where you can find me. And 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 I would say Uptown Thief might be the perfect gift for your the commercial reader in your life whom you want to yeah. uh you know impress with with a feminist lens. Yes, Uptown Thief is exactly that, and the sequel, The Boss, will be more of that. Like, you know, that that's the other thing that's so great that it came out. Uh, with Kensington books because Kensington's readers in this series are like young, poor and working class women of color, you know, and their aunties <laughs> and moms who want to read something that's, you know, very, it's fast paced. It's, you know, it's sexy. It's steamy. It's like the, it's the steamy beach read that's about feminist healthcare and radical wealth redistribution. <laughs> so there you go. If there's yes. someone in your life who you think isn't going to read the re the new Jim Crow, but but you want to, you know, give them those hard hitting politics, this is the book. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so so much. It's just thrilling to talk to you. Thanks so, so much for having me, and it's it's so great to get to have this conversation about politics, process, content with women who are doing that work. So thank you. Thank you so much.